Welcome all and welcome to podcast number 14. Um, today we're here with Hannah Asafiri and Marie Dinopoulos. Uh, we feel like this is going to be a really emotional and inspiring podcast. Um, the story that both of these women have to tell is, is truly tremendous um, and it's going to be one that I think will reach a lot of followers. So I'll pass it over to you two girls, but I, I, we want to hear a little bit about your background, um, where you've grown up, how you've grown up, um, the challenges that you faced, as well as how you guys connected and, and the work that you're doing through the community at the moment. So especially with um, human rights and women's rights, that so um, welcome girls. Thank you. Welcome. Thank so you. It's an absolute pleasure having you both here. Having uh, known Hannah and eaten at her restaurant on numerous occasions, and you said even Jess, yes. he's, he's a local Norfolk Troiner, he just bought his first place and Jess went down there and had a chickpea something. <laughs> yeah, that, chickpea that, bake, that, yes. That, yes. That, that, was, that was our first stop in the area. <laughs> yeah, so the, the good old Moroccan uh, soup bar, so it's uh, very well known in the community around here. And Maria, you have been a client for a number of years and become a very, very dear friend of mine, as you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, and uh, both of you ladies have done amazing things uh, for women and human rights and the community in general. So, from my perspective as well, Kofkin Bond's perspective, absolute honour having you both here. One of the things that we've uh, we've noticed, and maybe it's because I'm a child of immigrants, and uh, as both of you ladies are as well, so as um, there seems to be that entrepreneurial spirit when families uproot and leave and go to another country without any jobs. They arrive here, there's no jobs. Uh, well, there's jobs here, but there's no jobs waiting for them. Uh, there was no accommodation waiting for them. And basically, there seemed to be this real entrepreneurial spirit from the Lebanese and Moroccan background, the Greek background, the, the English, Irish, uh, Jewish, Catholic, Mooney Ponds mixture uh, <laughs> backgrounds. Um, and you know, even even last week with Leo, uh, you know, he he was uh, he was born here, but his parents came over from Italy as well. So, what are your thoughts in respect to just that uprooting and coming over here? So, Hannah, you were born here, Marie, you came here as a young lady. So, let's get your thoughts process on that first, if that's okay. Mm. Uh, look, I I think uh, firstly, thank you for having us. <laughs> I'm so excited. Any platform, man, I just take it because I think at the moment um, the conversation around multicultural culturalism, migrants, um, and the doublespeak, the way in which we talk about those who migrated as though we're somehow doing them a favour in accepting them, in integrating them into this country. Whereas I believe that migrants are certainly the foundations of building this country. And we need to be mindful of the way in which we have these conversations. Um, So the values of multiculturalism and the way they've enriched this society is not being expressed, sadly, or reflected by the governance uh, of our country. We keep talking about them as though they're a problem that needs solving, they have to integrate, they have to settle, they have to, rather than recognise what Mm. migrants bring to this country. So I do think there's an important uh, role for all of us to continue to keep that conversation alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a woman who, whose parents, uh, a young girl at the time whose parents, although I was born here, uh, we were raised overseas and I only came back when I was 12, I didn't speak English and um, very quickly learnt how to be othered 
how how I didn't belong and all the things that didn't make me belong through mm. what I didn't eat, um, the way I didn't speak and all those things. So very quickly I learned about how difference and living in that dislocation. Um, yet I found the extraordinary contribution of migrants and I think be, due to the very process of migration, migrants sought the betterment and that's why they left. Either yeah. they left wars or they left economic destitution or a whole host of things. So their optimism and their hunger and drive for entrepreneurships um, was, was almost inherent in their very nature of migrating. And that is, I think, what formed the foundations of building. And this very future-oriented. It was always about the betterment of their children. Always. So yes. yeah. that that focus on building our future, not stuck in the past. In fact, very rarely was it about the self-pity and the reflection of the hard times. It was we're going to focus on building a future for our children. Yeah. Um, certainly. You know, the focus on education in my family, mm. irrespective of gender, yeah. didn't matter whether I was a boy or a girl, mm. yeah. from my mother and father's perspective, you were going to go to university. There was no two two ways about it. I mm. You're, either gonna, me, be a, you're yeah. either going to be a lawyer or a doctor. Or a doctor, that's <laughs> it. And I was that, terrified of the sight of blood, so it was so definitely sure going to be law. Come, you're sure you didn't come from a Jewish family? Oh, no. <laughs> lawyer or doctor, so, so. It could be characteristic, I think, of a lot of my groups. Optimist. Yes. Yeah. And so, and their optimism and drive, I think, is probably uh, unparalleled in yeah. other sections of society. But so it was the, the lack of opportunity. I think I often reflect on because I was born in Greece and came to Australia when I was about six or seven. But um, I often remember going to my mother's factory where she busted a gut for two, you know, two shifts on, on board. We were the latch kids. Yeah. Could you imagine now? I think uh, public services would be <laughs> coming in and taking us away. Just, you know, the amount of times we were at home on our own, cooking our own meals and so on, because both our parents were working night shifts or yeah. double shifts. But I recall, and she speaks seven languages, but I recall the, uh, the union kind of using her because all the, the workforce were migrants. Yeah. Yeah. and thinking, wow, and the only thing she's actually recognised for is her lack of English. And yet here's this brilliant woman who's speaking seven languages, yeah. being used as a liaison for the, uh, the union at the time, but absolutely no regard, no recognition, certainly no extra pay for what she was doing, yeah. and opportunity. Had, had mm. she been given the opportunity, yeah. that same entrepreneurship that I think might characterise our sort of, you know, adult years... Mm just didn't feature for her. Her focus was on her children, as was my dad's, and making sure that we had the future. Mm. Yeah. Maria, it's interesting you raise that because it, my parents as well, who, who my mum, you know, was openly, she lived her first four years of her life in a barn. Mm. Uh, you know, there, was, there were animals in there within yeah. that barn. She and her siblings mm. and her father and her stepmum. That's where they spent the yeah. first four years, you know, of uh, her, yeah. her life. So for her, you know, she had, she had a tough, there's no doubt in that, in Ireland. Uh, my father was raised in an orphanage um, as well. And, you know, and thankfully he had a very good experience in that orphanage, and especially from education uh, side. But the one thing with my parents was about no matter what they did, their sacrifice was ensuring my sister and I had an education. Mm -hmm. 
mm. and actually use that. And if we were going to leave school, we were going to leave school for job. Yeah. There was no such thing as leaving school and sitting down the doll and things like that. Why do you think our parents, who necessarily didn't have that same opportunity for education, saw it as being so important for us growing up? Was that your experience as well, though, Hannah? Or I'm just sort of thinking yeah. about culturally and how much culture plays a role in it. Mm. And I do think um, the difference in the experiences yeah. around migration... European absolutely, versus, yeah, which, Well, and yeah. in terms yeah. of yeah. acceptance, I mean, let's face it, we were white, we were European, we were Christian. Yeah. So as much as we didn't fit, yeah. there were still elements that were okay with the dominant culture. Yeah. Um, whereas I think about some of my uh, Lebanese and Turkish friends who were Muslim at the time... Yeah. And that rejection of them and what that must have meant to mm. your yeah. family. So I think there's a there's a distinct sort of difference in our experiences in that regard as well. Mm. And also the mm. isolation mm. that then the the parents. I think the initial uh, reasoning for their migration is certainly the betterment and seeking something better. And there was a, a time when migrants came out, they certainly weren't fleeing wars. They were mm. simply yeah. just coming because they aspired for a better world and, and a better opportunity for their kids. And um, yet the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, there were some community and cultural groups that were vastly different to yeah. the Western European. So yes, the Europeans were much more likely to readily integrate, whereas those we could fit into those local schools absolutely. years ago. Yeah, and and if we yeah. had to pick off and and create a hierarchy about the people we picked on, we would pick less on those that were more like us. Yeah, in values, in cultural expression, in ways of being. So I think for for Muslims and and that conversation, I mean, we're fast-forwarding now, yeah. almost 50 years, uh, but that conversation in the last two decades changed and changed in a big way yeah. um, with an undercurrent of Islamophobia that seems to be global. Mm. Um, and the way it plays itself out, for me, is, is, is distinctly on women and women's bodies and women's opportunities and uh, the judgment that's levelled at women through their dress sense, through uh, enabling them to participate in society, etc. Um, so, yes, when, when our parents migrated, perhaps Maria's parents were much more able to integrate. Mm. Uh, for my parents, uh, my mother wasn't literate and um, and therefore, as a result, didn't integrate socially and yeah. there weren't the systems and opportunities to engage her in society. So her um, landscape was home and ensuring that the kids were okay just by cooking and cleaning and, yeah. and that was the measure of you know, are my kids okay? Are we safe? Are we? Um, and then resorting back to what she knew to be cultural um, expressions of what was positive. Your kids grow up, they get married, and as opposed to necessarily encouraging education. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for us, education wasn't necessarily something that we were encouraged to do, nor were there those opportunities. Yeah. Um, I, I almost defied that that trend by you certainly seeking, did defy <laughs> by, well, by seeking education yeah. because for me that was mm. my resilience yeah. in information in and knowledge did, did you have that from a young age that you wanted to be educated I like, absolutely was, every time and and again it's not for uh, my parents ill will but every time they resort back to what they know and certainly for women what they know is 
more subjugation for women, putting them in environments that aren't healthy, mm. um, marrying young women at a younger age because to mum that was what she knew to be safe. And um, So for me, education was a way out of those circumstances and where I found my resilience in abusive marriages and a whole host of stuff. I kept going back to my default was I need education. Um, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. And it is through knowledge that you can begin to um, not only debate and critique and, and uh, reject yeah. what, what the, you've been told is your lot mm. in so life. So I think that's the motivation for the knowledge that we share, yeah. that whilst I was encouraged around institutional education, I think my parents were horrified when I emerged out of Monash Uni with a law degree and said, <laughs> I don't actually want to office in Collins Street, I want to do human rights law yeah. and uh, and decided I was going to commit to work around family violence, well, refugees, that, yeah. human rights. That, it was like, they le- still don't know what I do. <laughs> well, that leads us into yeah. that. How, yeah. how did you two meet and, and I guess the work that you've been doing in human rights and women's rights, like, how did this all come about and, and, and working together? Mm. We arrived at it in very, very different places. Yeah. So for Maria, I think... Uh, conceptually and through study and for Hannah, <laughs> me, uh, through experiential journey and a journey that then uh, made me question the lot in life and and from that place I think we were complementary of one another. That Hannah, can I interrupt for mm-hmm. one moment if that's okay? For those of you who don't know Hannah's background and story, I remember being brought to tears watching mm-hmm. uh, and it was one plus one in, mm-hmm. on the ABC and ABC and that was in February 2018. So mm-hmm. if you want to see somebody who has blossomed from a very tough younger life, uh, this is the person. So and I know we're, we're not talking necessarily about that today, but mm. to understand that I think is vital for people to get a real understanding of mm. where you are today as a human. And but human I also think the well. journey for women, yeah. I mean, it, it, not necessarily violence, but yeah. the journey for women in uh, negotiating and navigating a very unequal social system whether it be our availability and access to economic opportunities or whether it be access to education opportunities. And yes, there's another layer and an intersecting layer when you're a migrant and another layer if you happen to be Muslim. Mm. So there's intersecting layers. But as women, I think uh, when when social systems are founded on keeping women in an unequal position, and it's playing itself out even now, Mm. and yes, the extreme of that is violence against women, but it is a continuum. So the story, hopefully, the one plus one story, um, is a relatable one for women and not necessarily only those who've endured and experienced violence, but those who seek to engage and interact in a system that is unequal and unfair. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So I still remember the very day that uh, I was the, um, the community lawyer at <laughs> um, the Domestic Violence and Incest Resource Centre One of the first projects I'd done was around domestic murders um, with uh, families like Phil and Vicky Cleary, who was murdered. Um, That sort of late 1980s that we're talking about where these kinds of issues just, yeah, Yeah. extraordinary man. Um, You should have him on, actually. Yeah. um, Mm. And he was raising so much uh, 
in a, in a time when we weren't actually talking about these issues. Yeah. Uh, I, and I was working closely with the coroner's court and working with the domestic violence sector and we were actually touching on the issues of migrant refugee women because a number of the Filipino women had raised the disappearance mm. and the importance of serial sponsorship. And so my legal background suddenly kicked in because I was able to support people around the immigration status and we started to actually get some laws changed um, mm. with people the, like... Um, Patricia is still. Yes, Patricia is still. Various others who've now gone on to do some amazing things. But in comes this uh, a young woman, Hannah Safiri, who whose fierceness about the importance of looking at migrant and refugee women in their own right rather than just an add-on, whose thirst, I think, for knowledge, and you talk about that background, but she took nothing for granted and you could not help but be struck by this woman's presence. She just started working, I think, at Refuge Referrals as a uh, shift worker, um, a telephone support worker, mm. Mm. and I think those of us in the room knew this woman wasn't going to stop it being, not that I think there's, uh, you know, I think the value of people on the phone is extraordinary, but we knew this woman was going to go on and on and on. And of course, at the time, really trying to encourage your involvement, I think, in the Immigrant Women's Refugee Service, which we were just starting to set up, and you went on and became the CEO of that organisation within, what, five years, I think. But that, that, that um, intersection in our lives between somebody who'd almost literally gone from high school to university, did some activism there, emerged with a law degree, wondered what I was going to do with the law degree, found myself in, uh, in work around family violence and, uh, and the law and the intersections there, to meet someone whose journey was so starkly different in that you'd come from a place of abuse yourself, mm. you'd come from a place where um, that, that knowledge wasn't just something that you had handed to you yeah. and it wasn't theoretical it was practical and I recall that some of the biggest arguments I had were with this woman sitting next to me because <laughs> she would kind of say well your theory is really helpful thanks for that but what does it mean in practice so I often say that it's the point of meeting Hannah where I learned the concept of praxis which is of course the combination of theory and practice you can't have one without the other yeah. and I would hope that the philosophical framing of our mutual work now because we do so much in this field um, on different sort of parts of it is praxis how do we bring theory and knowledge together with that practice and I think if there's one thing that you taught me is you can't ignore the voice of lived experience if you're going to develop meaningful change for anybody yeah. you can use all the theory you like but if you don't listen to those voices of lived experience, then it's always going to fall short. Mm -hmm. And that's the lesson that I hope that I learnt from, from Hannah, but certainly have continued to make sure that when we're talking about any of these policy changes, because we both do different work on policy yeah. and change, if you don't have people with lived experience around that table, then you can forget it. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And, and I think that... I guess for me, the um, and obviously through lived experience, you then develop a framework and articulate concepts and theories and, and try and find a way to marry and match those up in your expression and resolve. Um, but for me, I guess social justice became a perspective 
Um, so, and I found myself tussling often with women and women's services and um, about, oh, we'll deal with that later. Let's first get the conversation right for women. And I just think, but what about these other women? What about Indigenous women? What about migrant women? So I found myself inside the theory being a deficit. And, and constantly, instead of contributing, instead of being somebody that was going to complement the conversation, I found that I became an adversary because I was always talking about the, the lack in uh, their understandings. But you were always being characterised as the poor Muslim woman who had no option to... Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You mean, weren't going to take that. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so... I guess those experiences also enabled us to look at the plight of others who were less fortunate than ourselves and to look at the benefits that we have on the back of conversations around Indigenous women. Mm. So, and, and for me, that comes from having lived through the injustices. So I have a profound sense of, for me, what is right and what is wrong. And it doesn't resonate for everybody, but yeah. it certainly... Um, and in that, I think when women come together, the now the conversation, fast forward 20 years, now we're prepared to talk about intersectionality, diversity, all those things in a much more meaningful way than we were when the struggle for women was just women and let's recognise women. Yeah. Which women was what we well, often ask. Well, that's right. You know? <laughs> Which women are you talking about? Because yeah. it doesn't reflect our experiences. Yeah. So, it, and it's it's not the fault of, of the women's services sector. They certainly, the, they were well meaning, uh, the intention was there, but the translation to women who were on the margins of those conversations didn't necessarily uh, result in the betterment of the experience of those women at all. And but that's I why I about, I think about the real change that happens on the ground and the work that you do, yeah. um, you know, certainly I might come in at that policy level and try and influence change in government. I spend a lot of time as the chair of the Harmony Alliance, yep. which is um, the federally funded alliance for migrant and refugee women. So we're often meeting ministers, we're often going to Canberra, often trying to raise these issues. But I'm, I'm struck by those day-to-day -day changes that I um, hear about when I even just walk into Hannah's shop yeah. uh, or Hannah's restaurant and, and the women that you employ who come from these backgrounds mm. who leave saying my life has changed as a result. So you can measure the change of policy over a number of years, but to see that change right there in front of you, um, that experience I think around um, one of the women and who her daughters. Do mm. you mind sharing that? I mean, that's an example so, yeah. of how this change can happen through Hannah, employment. You employ, you employ yeah. a lot of these women yeah. who have come to you for help in so, your shop. So yeah. when and in leaving the women's services sector, and I think we did that in various capacities for up to 15 years. Mm. And yes, we worked on, with Maria, on reform and family violence and, and offering and trying to tussle with different models that respond. And then we had a change of government, both federal and state. And they introduced this notion of unit costing. They wanted to be able to quantify and cost the experience of a woman ex escaping violence. Okay. And and that would be fine if you, if a woman was generic. But yeah. when women's needs are complex and they have added issues and the system itself does not respond to them, then they were the ones that were going to receive a disservice. Mm. 
they were the ones that were never going to be supported. So from there, I just thought, the only reason I'm staying is because it's a safe, predictable job, blah, blah, blah. Um, and with that, I thought, what are women good at? No matter our experiences, no matter whether we're literate or not, whether we're <clears throat> um, educated or not, whatever our experiences were, that we're all conditioned to cook. Yeah. That is part of our conditioning and has been the source of our subjugation. It's been a source of you know, the expectation that I come home, I find a meal, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and I thought if we can use that but make it a platform for empowering women rather than subjugating women. So it is through cooking that we then begin to empower women. We pay them, we uh, assess and understand and interject and circuit break that cycle for them. We find out what their needs are, we offer network, support, advocacy, so that they then transition to becoming the very champions of the very causes that have left them disadvantaged in the first place. It wasn't a small these, For aim. a lot of these women, is this their first job? It's absolutely their yeah, first, first job. Yeah, first job that they've so, ever had, yeah. Well, and for a lot of these women, it's during dire and desperate circumstances. Yeah. Initially. So they've, they've left... Literally They've fleeing. left domestic violence. <laughs> Initially. They're fleeing, yep. So when they've we never first worked, up, They've never worked before, so it's it's a horrible... In, in, in a lot of cases, I believe... Um, oh, and I've forgotten her name, Victorian Police. Um, Nixon? I mean, no, no. no. Um, I met her at your restaurant. Um, oh, Maha. Maha, Maha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's actually said one of the one of the problems that she sees is that they stay in this situation because they don't have that economic power and that's they've right. never worked before. So that's they right. so they so they stay there in that abusive relationship. But that's what as I mean result. about your theories. Your theories are only as good as you can apply them. Yeah. Um, and you have to be able to look at how do we ensure the independence yeah. of women. And so for me, I think over the 21 years, rarely have I had a resume submitted. Women just walk in the door and go, I want a job, in whatever language. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I don't even speak their language, yet women find a way of communicating that is different. Um, and the other thing for me which is also important is I've never refused a woman employment mm. whether I need workers or not and often I don't need workers and the reason for that is because I do believe I don't believe in charity I think it mm. is about empowering women yes yeah and when women come together and particularly when they they uh, relate with shared experiences and I think the power of that is immeasurable that that you redress the isolation oh it's not just me this is happening to it's other women you become relatable and then through those processes um, and I will touch on one of the examples and it's completely unexpected and unpredictable and we didn't design the workplace to for that to happen yet it became a byproduct and an important one um, so there was a woman um, as an example of women who then championed the causes mm. she walks in she was suicidal absolutely suicidal, living in her car. I didn't speak Somali, she's Somali. Uh, she didn't speak Arabic and English was not. Uh, and she said, she hit me, she's six foot tall. She literally slapped me. <laughs> she said, I want a job. Yeah. And I said, well, tomorrow? Like I was intimidated by it. Yeah. And, I mean, I just went and it was, was early on. And I said, tomorrow, now. I said, okay, come. Of course, she can cook. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we put her on dishes, I yeah. think, in the beginning or yeah. whatever. 
And then over the course of time, um, and very quickly, I thought I'd give her a day, but clearly it became really clear that she needed somewhere to stay. Uh, she had one of her kids with a hole in their heart. Like, she really needed desperately support. Now, I've come from a background that obviously is well-connected with the women's domestic violence sector, with services, resources, with estate agents who were well-meaning and good men, some of them, mm. who will bypass the criteria and offer up a place for women to stay. Um, and they're the sorts of things that were available to us that we were able to support her with. So anyway, and one day she comes in a few months later and she says, um, should I be saying this story? Mm -hmm. uh, she says, I need to take some time off um, because, you know, they come from a family where I need to go and um, circumcise my daughter. I need to cut my daughter. Now, look, we live in a world where you're mandated to report these things and uh, it is absolutely, you know, uh, it's, it's not something even conceptually we think mm -hmm. should be happening. And blah, blah, blah. Um, Now, as a starting premise, I was never going to let that happen. Yeah. But instead of judging her and instead of just being mandated to report, and I knew her by this stage a few months in, so I inquired where those attitudes came from where this idea came from. Now, to her mind, she was not a literate woman, um, and she believed that this was a positive thing, to make her daughter marriageable, to enable her daughter to... Um, inside their cultural context. Mm. And, there, and there was no analysis about the role of men, the role of women. It was simply something she that was customary and traditional that she thought was a positive thing. And she thought it was founded in Islam. Now, I've studied Islam, mm. and I read and write Arabic, and I kept bringing her back to Islam and saying, this has no basis in Islam, that this is an extension in your culture, yeah. as is every other culture, of male dominance mm. um, and of further subjugating and violating women. This is not Islamic, and if you are doing this because it's faith-based... So I used Islam, which is something she believes and understands, mm. and uh, to explain to her, and take her through a process of saying that this is not about faith, but this is about the violation and yeah. the departure from faith. And she would take that information and go back to her community and the ummas and mullahs mm. in her community and challenge with exactly what I was saying. And we did this for over six weeks. Okay. And then she came in one day and she said, Hannah, I'm not going to cut my daughter. She now is an advocate against the practice. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you can't buy that stuff. And virtually no. change the views of the Somali community. And you can't, <laughs> you can't force that stuff and you can't just write it in policy. Yeah. That stuff can yeah. only happen when women are taken on a journey, um, informed, given information that resonates for them, not superimposing something that makes sense to you. If it doesn't resonate for her... Because meanwhile, back at the ranch, all us lawyers were developing this stuff about female genital mutilation yeah. and, and mandatory reporting. And, yeah. and this was still happening. It was going underground because Absolutely. that wasn't what was and going to Back in the yards and yeah. the women were taking their kids yeah. overseas. Yeah. And it's not because they're... And look, I, I draw a distinct clear line between abuse. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's unequivocal and not negotiable yeah yet the the uh the women's intention here is not to abuse their daughters yeah. or their children yeah in in this situation if it was a situation of abuse absolutely there would be unequivocal yeah. intervention so i think our model over 21 years has become one that now we're trying to formalize where we're trying to bring in 
uh, if you enable women and uh, circuit break that cycle by offering a platform, then it is from that place that you're able to support and advocate for their empowerment and independence Absolutely. through employment. Um, and it's a model we're now discussing with Box Hill TAFE, we're yeah. discussing with CAEs, as a model that brings together both community development and hospitality at the same time and formalising these networks and these modes of supporting women who are absolutely on the fringes, on the margins that society just doesn't want to know about. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's been that coupled with a community that's gotten behind our vision. I mean, we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for uh, people that were also generous and forgiving. Yeah. Um, because sometimes we spill bloody tea on them because we're not trained. <laughs> we just go, oh, oops, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but, but people, uh, I think when, when the betterment of our humanity is enabled and is on show and on offer, almost always people resonate with that and are forgiving and generous. Well, the first time Jamie and I ate at your restaurant, we were in Dressed Like We Are Today. Did we spill something on In our same time. Okay. Nothing was spilled on oh, us. There was, no, there was no judgment and the food was absolutely delicious. Awesome. <laughs> so it was... Uh, yeah. Can I ask yeah. though, during that journey, the 21-year journey, mm. how many women have you enabled through employment? Over 200, I wow. think. And at the moment, I've got about 40. Um, wow. And, you know, the place, in all honesty, uh, probably can't sustain more than 20. Yeah. Yet, um, I'm committed absolutely uh, to, um, you know, whoever walks in the It might be 200 is, in number, but, you know, it's probably closer to 2,000 because I think over the years I've met the daughters of some of these yeah. women who've gone on and become but This story you just told of the Somali woman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, many, how many other young girls... Fantastic. have now been saved because of, because of what, what that I'm one saying. story. So she... Mm, uh, impact's amazing. She, yeah. Her advocacy now, and we are still dear friends. Yeah. She still slaps me. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. It's the Somali <laughs> way. That's right. So, <laughs> but, that's affection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also, I think, importantly, <coughs> communication is not just about language. Mm. In fact, very little of the way women communicate is yeah. about our ability to speak English um, and when you offer those places and spaces uh, and you know people go how do you advertise how do we word of mouth we are oral traditions yeah. and verbal term. people tell people and when there's that place that is available to you I don't know they just can't they keep yeah. coming and there's a new phenomenon now emerging um, of younger women who are coming to us, and they're not necessarily the destitute, the the women in crisis, but they are the women that society is hostile to, the Muslim women, mm. the women that don't see themselves reflected and represented anywhere else, but in our spaces they feel validated. Yeah. And they're the, the women that are coming to work with us now. So there's a new wave of, interestingly, a new pattern that's emerging about who is coming to the Moroccan Supa now and how they're finding their sense of, and their journey of being at least validated. Because we, if nothing else, we're certainly not politically aligned, mm. but we are affiliated with human rights and social justice, and we speak that truth in the most unconventional of ways. Yeah. And at the moment, I hold the, the <laughs> evening and just go, yeah. Yeah. listen up, you people. <laughs> we, need to, we need to safeguard 
these values as a society who pretends to be multicultural, who is advocating its plurality, who's enriched by diversity. We, if those values are not being safeguarded by our leadership, mm. by the media, by religious institutions, it is on us. Yeah. So we take that stand and, and people kind of go, this is weird, but it's great. It's interesting though, because I think there's a lot of young girls or young ladies in today's community that don't understand the freedoms that they actually have today because of the struggles that you ladies went through, because of the struggles that your mothers went through and their mothers went through. Mm. So it's, I mean, I've, I've often said that, you know, kids are so lucky today. Well, my parents said the same about my generation mm. or yes. our generation, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. so it's, yeah. um, their parents yeah. said the same about how lucky mm. they had mm. it, you know, mm. so mm. it's, um, so, but there, there seems to be that you're talking about that new generation of mm. girls coming in today, mm. but they're coming in today because of the work that you did 25 years ago. Uh, and the work yeah. that both of you did, the work that, the work that you did, that domestic yeah. violence just was not sure. acceptable anymore. Sure. But it's your visibility yeah. too, Hannah. I mean, you talked about the lack of representation. Well, Hannah got an OAM recently. Yeah. And, um, they're throwing them away. I they're throwing them away. Yeah, they're giving them a roof raff like you. But seriously. But I think it is, I mean, what was important about that, and I know you're going to be humble about your own work, but was the visibility that if, if Muslim women who are working at, that, at this capacity, who are strategic, who are intelligent, who can bring business now to all of this mm. and get formal recognition, then I think for those young women, I can too. And that's the difference, I think, yeah. perhaps, that mm. the visibility that you have now as a role model means that some of these young women can feel inspired mm. about the possibilities. Yeah. But but also I do advocate, I mean, when I talked about that other woman, that mm. I advocate going back to I find empowerment inside Islam. Mm. I don't shy away from uh, interrogating the Islamophobic rhetoric, mm. um, nor do I shy away from the misogyny inside Muslim communities. Yeah, and I think for for women, for particularly the younger ones who are finding themselves kind of at the fringes and being attacked in society, they resonate with that vision because yeah. you're not asking them to denounce Islam. In yeah. fact, the opposite. Yeah. You're, you're saying to them you can find your better expression yeah. inside a system of belief and you can actively challenge the men no matter the system. Yeah. And, and that unsettles mm. Muslim men as well mm. uh, because we hold them to account. I think it unsettles a lot of men. Mm. Well, yeah, that's right. General, yeah. So, so, so yeah. I think one of the things that Hannah has taught me with the use of a business model, mm. because I have to say that historically I've really resisted that, and uh, you might call me a socialist in that regard, Tony. <laughs> uh, you probably have. <laughs> so I've resisted that. But, um, but what Hannah's taught me is that these models can actually work in partnership, that you can Absolutely. open up these dialogues. And I think for me, Tony, if I can reflect on just uh, a point in my life where um, I'm a lawyer and yet I was fell victim to a, a scam by my own accountant and who took advantage of a business partner who was being diagnosed with dementia at the time. Um, who basically ripped off um, money and left me in a situation 
where as a consultant I could have gone completely under. Yeah. But I think recognising the need to reach out and move past the shame of thinking I should have known better. I've got a law degree. I, I, I'm out there working with government departments and yet here I am being gullible enough to accept or invest a certain level of belief and trust in someone who proceeded to leave me in a debt with $500,000. To then open up, I think, and and come across uh, people working in business like yourself, like, like Jamie, who have integrity, who actually understand how that can happen, but who also look at ways of empowering, because I think just as easily at that time, I could have easily just declared bankruptcy and let it all go and run away to Greece. Mm. Um, so I, I thank you and, and Jamie and, and this organisation as well for reinvesting a belief that you can work in partnership with others, you can work with models that don't inherently mean you've you've sold your soul. I've learnt that, I think, over the years, mm. that you can draw on people and networks and admit, admit that you were trusting but not lose the capacity to continue to trust. And yeah. I really... Uh, value that, which is why we're here. I mean, I, well, we, we don't do those it. podcasts easily. Yeah. Uh, you know, media star over here just yeah, 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 just yeah, does yeah, it yeah, with yeah. Compass and yeah, others. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, uh, the first time I am. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're here because I think you also offer that opportunity, and I hope people who are listening see value in partnerships that extend beyond just community or just government mm. to saying there's real value in collective in collective work that can make a, an enormous difference to people's lives because I would like to say that the result is you know, people like Hannah, hopefully myself, who don't just see this as being about you know individual gain mm. but who take that... That feel grateful for it and want to extend it to other people. But I think though, yeah. Maria, mm. sometimes um, I also think you're a little bit too humble in the work that you do. Um, now, we've known each other for about four years mm. now, I, I suppose, um, and I met you uh, only because of that disaster mm. that occurred in your life, that financial mm. disaster. But at the same time, I think that, you know, from my perspective, you seemed we looked at what we could do. We found a solution for you that wasn't bankruptcy mm-hmm. and you're flourishing today because because you got burnt by one person, you still were willing to trust somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so by you not being closed off by that, uh, of what had happened to you previously, mm-hmm. was the reason why you are still doing what you're doing. And it would have been an absolute horrible situation to lose you. To, to go and run off to Greece mm. because of everything that you not have just done but continue to do and continue to do for women, domestic violence, uh, the work you do for the community in general. And it always comes from a place of empathy with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think you're being a little bit humble sometimes in 
the amazing work that you do and continue to do for society in general mm. and, and everyone's human rights. Mm. I mean, it's uh, you and I could not be more opposite. In actual fact, the only way you and I could be more opposite if you were Hannah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we're probably the five percent a little yeah. bit more opposite than what you and I are. Yeah. But the, mm. the point is, though, is everything you do is about how can I help this person mm. have a better life? Both of you. Yeah. Mm. Um, it, it is. It is not. And I've often said too that, and I think I might have said this to you as well, Marie, is that financial gain is not about uh, necessarily your own materialistic gain. The great things that you can do mm. if you are financially successful for the community, no different than what you've done, Hannah, mm. uh, employing 40 people even though you can sustain 20. <laughs> so it's... Uh, but. But ensuring these people have that opportunity, and I think that's one of the things about financial success is the amount of good that that can actually be done. Mm. Uh, I mean, for me, it's about education, and I got that ingrained in me from my parents and being able to help uh, underprivileged children with education. So, mm. um, you know, that's that's the thing that Boyana and I strive to always do. So, mm. you you ladies do what you do, mm. and as a result, I think the community is better. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. agree that education, yeah. I just think it's the way we deliver education and yeah. we need to think differently, that yeah. it doesn't just happen in schools. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, certainly those that are marginalised don't even have access to, to the privilege of choosing school over work. Yeah. So if we can offer education in workplaces and spaces where people still earn a living, and I guess this is what we try and do. Yeah. Education, empowerment, and um, and business, and coalitions and partnerships, and I think that is the way of the future. Mm. Much more communal way of thinking, and a lot less individualistic. Yeah. Um, if we are to sustain a sense of humanity, given what's unfolding around the world. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think you know to have me and Tony sit here with our mouths open. Uh, <laughs> if anyone that knows us, we we. <laughs> As I said at the start, I knew it was going to be an absolute cracker, this one. So, ladies, I thank you very much. It's really appreciated you coming today. Yeah, what you've done for humanity is beautiful, ladies, and what you continue to do. And it's been an absolute honour for us to have you here. Thank you. And be able to call you friends as well. So, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. you.